Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and this month, in recognition of Earth Day, I'm talking with Carlos Gray Santana, Associate Professor of Philosophy, about the next proposed geologic time unit, the Anthropocene, which means human new epoch. Recently, Professor Santana has been researching and teaching the two-way interaction between how science classifies the world and how we as a species see ourselves in relation to non-human nature. The current epoch is called the Holocene, which began more than 11,000 years ago. Now, a panel of scientists have proposed and even declared a new epoch or geologic time unit, the Anthropocene. What does the Anthropocene mean and why the proposed move? Yeah, so the term Anthropocene has become really popular in a lot of contexts, and it's used to mean a bunch of different things. Uh, In a lot of places, just in public discourse, it's used as Uh, just as a sort of synonym with the environmental crisis or climate change. And uh, and it's it's interesting questions about why it is that people are, would want to use this funny sounding word. uh, That's, it's not so clear what it means for those things rather than just talking about the environmental crisis or climate change. But what I'm particularly interested in as a philosopher of science is not so much the broad use of, of the, the concept or the term, but instead what the way it's being debated and used specifically within the science of geology. So uh, geologists have this uh, consensus, single recognized, officially designated way of carving up Earth's history called the geologic time scale. And it's based on uh, identifiable changes in the layers of rock that represent the history of the Earth. and uh, And there is a a formal process that goes through various professional uh, organizations of geologists by which uh, proposed new units of the geologic timescale get officially recognized. Now, the Anthropocene is a proposal that uh, we are no longer living in that geologic epoch, the Holocene, which began, uh, to put it in layman's terms, at the end of the last ice age. Instead, we, we've entered a point of, of geologic history when the layers of sediment and rock that are forming right now are going to look very different because of things that humans are doing, hence the idea of, of this human epoch. This is controversial. The, for over a decade now, there has been a group of scientists officially designated by what's called the International Commission on Stratigraphy, the, the people who uh, who sort of approve any changes to the geologic timescale, they put together a working group on the Anthropocene. And the working group on the Anthropocene has uh, come out overwhelmingly in favor of recommending that we adopt this uh, and designate that we st- that this new epoch has begun. But there's two kinds of controversy surrounding this proposal, which hasn't become an official part of the timescale yet. Uh, one controversy is exactly when the Anthropocene would have started. So. What geologists are particularly interested in is not a question like, when did climate change begin to accelerate? Or uh, when did the environmental crisis begin in modern times? What they're interested in is particularly the question of, uh, when is there going to be a marker in the 
Earth's history as recorded in those layers of sedimentary rock. So, uh, you know, one proposal is that we mark the beginning of the Anthropocene in 1945 when the first atomic bombs were detonated because the the signature of uh, of the, the like radioactive isotopes that were you know spread across all the world through the atmosphere by atomic and later nuclear explosions those those that signature will will be detectable to geologists for millions and millions of years in the future and be a sort of clear boundary line in the rock other people think that we should look for signatures that have to do with the beginning of the industrial revolution or even the sort of uh, beginning of the exchange between the old world and the new world in 1492 uh, the idea there is something like uh, chickens are an old world animal that after 1492, you're going to start seeing their fossils in new world sediments. And uh, corn is a new world plant. And after 1492, you're going to start finding fossilized corn from, you know, in sediments that formed after 1492 in the old world. So, so one thing that geologists are debating is what sort of geologic marker should we be looking for? And according to that marker, when does the Anthropocene start? But the other part of the debate, and the part I'm even more interested in, is whether or not we should actually recognize that uh, the Anthropocene as a new epoch. Some geologists are skeptical that the types of uh, effects that humans are having on the planet right now are geologically significant enough to justify uh, designating a new epoch. And, and a lot of researchers, including myself, uh, don't actually think that that what we're seeing is some nice hard break with the Holocene. That you know the Holocene begins more than eleven thousand years ago, uh, around the same time that humans begin practicing agriculture. And and to a lot of us, I mean, it looks to us as if the mark that that humans are leaving on the geologic record actually begins back then. And so. And so the Anthropocene is really the same thing as the Holocene, no need to designate a new epoch. So what does the Anthropocene say about how humans see their relationship to nature? Yeah, that's a good question. This is another important area of debate about this, and one where uh, a lot of social scientists and humanities researchers have have sort of, you know, planted a stake in what could have been a debate internal to the earth sciences. So when you hear Anthropocene, you get this sort of idea that that what that word means is like the point in the earth's history when humans become the dominant sort of driving force in the earth's ecological and geologic processes. And as I mentioned, whether or not that's actually the case is is already a little bit debatable, but it's certainly true that a, a lot of us, uh, I mean, a lot of us, meaning people in general, do sort of see the planet as having been sort of put under humanity's thumb, that that we are, are now the, you know, the overlords of everything, if, you know, for better or for worse, and, and designating our current time period, the Anthropocene, sort of suggests that and reinforces that idea. Some of us think that th that this is problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, one common idea that's increasingly popular in the environmental humanities, for instance, is that there's something really misleading about the focus on humanity in general in the term Anthropocene, that uh, this sort of relationship of domination towards nature that is leading to all of these uh, earth system changes 
is not driven by humanity as a species. It's driven by a subset of humanity. It's driven by, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, industrialists or capitalists or colonialists or, uh, you know, the 1%. And, and the right way of seeing the sort of breakdown of our productive relationship with nature is not to say it's a it's a species-wide problem but instead to say oh no this is actually driven by a a small subset of humanity but for me uh one of my reservations about the term anthropocene is is i don't like how it decenters what you might call the agency of the non-human world uh and and centers just sort of humanity's power and control over nature it's true that that you know we as humans are having massive you know uh planet-wide geologic level effects on the world but this doesn't mean that the world is under our management the the the, the non-human world is still doing its own thing and it's and it's responding in uh often surprising and interesting and powerful ways to the things that our species is doing. So uh, I worry about, uh, about using a label that might get people thinking that we're more you know, in the driver's seat than we actually are. Like we're definitely making a mess, but that doesn't mean that, that, that we're in control of the direction we're going. There, there is a subset of people who, uh, who have sort of embraced the idea of, of, of the Anthropocene and who, you know, I, I even identify themselves as sort of in favor of what they call a good Anthropocene, where they take this idea that, that we're in the driver's seat very seriously and just say, so now we get to, uh, all we need to do is drive well. Uh, that, that the solution to the environmental crisis is just to micromanage the planet uh, in an intelligent way. How does this new geologic timescale impact science communication and how topics such as climate change are communicated? I mean, like everything else in this area, the answer to that question is because controversial. Certainly a lot of a, a lot of researchers, both in the sciences and the humanities, think that it's really important that geologists officially recognize the Anthropocene precisely because it will sort of give, you know, the the backing of of this group of scientists to in a way that sort of pushes against uh, climate change skepticism and denialism. And for example, a few years ago, there was an editorial in the leading science journal Nature that more or less made this case uh, in, in a sort of the type of statement that I think it's very rare to see from leading scientists. So some of these leading scientists said, whether or not the geologic facts really bear out that that we're in a new epoch, uh, we should still recognize the Anthropocene just as a way of sort of encouraging people to take climate change and the environmental crisis seriously. Now, I'm skeptical about this uh, because there's already a well-publicized consensus among scientists about climate change. If if it were possible to reach climate skeptics and denialists just by letting them know that the scientists all agreed that climate change is real and caused by humans, that we would have reached them a long time ago. Uh, and, 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 and I, I don't think like having a funny sounding, hard to understand word being endorsed by 
a slightly less relevant set of scientists is going to improve anything. Uh, I, I think this is an example of sort of a an understandable but but like common misconception of what good science communication looks like. So, I mean, we all understand that like science communication fails a lot of the time. We look around at climate skeptics and anti-vaxxers and just sort of broad uh, ignorance of the scientific facts and think, oh, there's there's some failure of communication between like the scientific results and, and translating those results and getting them out to the people in general. And I'm not saying there isn't some some failures on that account, but uh, if, but that's I think the wrong focus for for us when we're trying to understand why people don't trust and understand science. I think the reason where people don't trust or understand science that they don't do so is the same reason why people don't trust or understand anything. What is it that we trust and understand? We trust and understand things that we ourselves are familiar with and are involved in. And what good science communication looks like to me is uh, is having a scientific process that the people uh, are involved in, that, that the failures of science communication we have are because we have created, and you know this varies a bit from society to society, I think it's particularly bad in the United States, we've, we've created a sort of set of scientific institutions that are almost utterly inaccessible to uh, to lay people, right? That uh, we expect that everything that happens internal to science just happens internal to science and all the public gets to see is the results. The public doesn't decide, uh, and it, it doesn't decide which scientific projects get funded. They have very little say in what questions scientists are asking or think are important. The, uh, I mean, we're experimenting in a few domains with a little bit of citizen science where the citizens actually participate in some of the production of scientific knowledge. But even in those domains, uh, oftentimes, the so-called citizen scientists are are really just sort of treated as free labor than actual expert contributors to the scientific questions. And so, I don't think you improve a deficit in the science communication just by slapping down a new long word and then hoping people are all of a sudden convinced. I think we actually have to think about changing the institutions of science and getting the broader public involved in everything from uh, from science funding to designing experiments to uh, to evaluating and publishizing re- results. And, uh, and you know, there are people here and there who are experimenting with models for doing this. And this is where I, as a philosopher of science, this is where I'm really excited about the potential to improve not just science communication, but I think just improve science in general. Right. So do you think the term itself, Anthropocene, could be detrimental to the public in in the way that they view the environment, possibly making them complacent? Or how do you feel about that? Yeah, so I have I have two things to say about this. Uh, one is, uh, and this is something I, I've argued in print, is that while we might be living in the Anthropocene, we're better off not officially recognizing it yet. And this is because I think the Anthropocene works better as a, a threat than a promise. That uh, it's still possible for us. I mean, it's increasingly, you know, we're making it harder and harder for ourselves, but it's still possible for us to sort of uh, pull back on a lot of the uh, the massive environmental changes that, that we're causing. We can, 
it's still possible for us to, for instance, uh, you know, restrict the amount of warming from climate change to a couple degrees centigrade. And uh, and and if we, if we do this, the the scope of the geologic changes we cause might not be epoch making. And and I think that should still be our goal. And we shouldn't just go around telling people that, you know, make a bad pun that. Uh, that the like drastic changes that the Anthropocene would be designating are set in stone. The I have an, a second reason too for worrying that this might make people complacent or at least shift their focus in the wrong way is, and it gets back to what I was mentioning earlier about the the Anthropocene sort of convincing people that we're just in the driver's seat that that all the power in Earth systems lies with with humans. Is I actually think it's really important for us to recognize the the power that continues to exist in non-human nature that uh, to, to recognize that that even as we you know tear down the w wilderness wildness is still all around us uh w w one way i sometimes talk about this with my students is yeah you know and of what the environmental crisis represents is, is it represents uh the decay of of our relationship with non-human nature and where we have sort of become abusive towards non-human nature. But in a situation of abuse, the thing to do is not to de-emphasize the agency of the, uh, you know, of the abused party and emphasize the power of the abuser. If you really want to fight against the abuse, it's important to recognize the agency of, in this case, non-human nature and to emphasize, uh, you know, it's, power to adapt and respond to us and a lot of what i'm excited about in, in in my work right now is is where scientists are identifying the ways in which nature is adapting and responding to us in ways that uh can provide us with, with hope and that and that i think it's important that as we communicate to the public that we communicate to the public that overcoming the environmental crisis isn't just about us wielding our power more benevolent benevolently it's a it's about relearning how to work with nature rather than just extracting from it so do you think there's a chance that we the next epoch might possibly not be the anthropocene like far in the future yeah so uh there's a there's a famous paper by the science study scholar donna haraway where she suggests that the Anthropocene isn't actually going to be an epoch, that it's going to be just like a short-term disaster, a geologic blip, just uh, th th that, you know, either we get our act together and and, and we relearn re how to have that healthy relationship with non-human nature, or we don't and we really screw ourselves over. And either way, the Anthropocene is not going to last very long and it's going to look some, something more like you know, in the geologic record, it's going to look like something that just happened briefly and caused a lot of damage, like a, a major asteroid impact or a, a big volcanic eruption that uh, humanity might be an acute disease on the face of the planet and not a long term one. Uh, and, and that's quite possible. If, if that's the case, the Anthropocene just ends up looking in the geologic record like uh, just like a, a, a weird stripe that happened in the Holocene and the Holocene will continue for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I can't pr predict the long-term future. I tend to, be, you know, 
I, I try to be optimistic about the environmental crisis and think we're not going to all drive ourselves extinct uh, in the next couple hundred years. But uh, that's certainly possible. And and if that happens, I don't think there's an Anthropocene. I think Haraway is right. And we just have this stripe of disaster. That was Carlos Gray Santana, Associate Professor of Philosophy. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.